This podcast contains some very open conversations about parenthood and mental health, so there may be some content that listeners might find triggering or upsetting. Please listen at your own discretion, and for help or support, look at the episode description for resources. And please do. Asking for help was the best thing I ever did. I'm Laura Dockrell, and this is Zombie Mum, a podcast that aims to normalise the conversation surrounding mental health and parenthood, hearing voices from the perspective of both parents and children for some empathetic, compassionate, heartbreaking, heartwarming, real talk. This episode is a slight twist in the series. We wanted to recognise that the effects of parenthood do not just come from the viewpoint of parents, but from the very little ears, eyes and hearts that surround us, that seem to feel the responses, reactions and repercussions of adult movements the most. The perspective of a child. My next guest is king of poems, Lem Sassay. Lem is one of my greatest inspirations. He speaks like a poem, he tweets like a poem. He is a poem. I have always loved his work in its many forms, read aloud in a theatre, on the page, on the radio. If you were to be bored enough to hunt down my MySpace, he would probably be cringingly written there in the bio about how much I love him. We've been in many packed rooms together, in another life of course, at launches and meetings, events and festivals. But it was when we were billed on a panel together at the British Library with an hour to kill in the green room beforehand, we had a cup of tea each and finally got to talk one-on-one. I was maybe a year and a half away from my own experience, still raw and hurting, totally baffled and discombobulated, desperately trying to piece myself back together. My own memoir had not yet released, and I was very much seeking connection, conversation, with the topic being, only talk to me please if you have also walked through the flames. Lem actually paused, stood up, reached into his pocket for his wallet, and bought me a copy of his own book from the events bookshop. That very act is a symbol of his generosity. And on the way home, I began reading. My Name Is Why is a memoir like no other. It unravels like a documentary about his experience with the institutional care system, race, family and the meaning of home. You are so gripped by the information unfolding before you as it unlocks Lempe's detective, lawyer, journalist, poet and child. You are shocked, heartbroken, moved. You are crying, you are laughing. And there's so much of Lem in there, so much brightness and buoyance. I found I wanted the book to live very closely to me all the time, by my pillow when I slept, by my desk when I edited the hard bits out of my own book. As a reminder, I suppose, that we can and we do go through hard stuff, we do, but that we can live alongside those difficult things. They can shape us, even make us. Pinch me, please, as I introduce the extraordinary Lem Sassay. So, Lem, for anyone who doesn't know, what was growing up like for you? Well, it's not too dramatic to say that I didn't know who I was when I was growing up. I thought that my name was Norman Mark Greenwood when I was growing up. So my mum was pregnant and she was put into a mother and baby home. And the social worker who was connected to the nuns at the mother and baby home found foster parents for my mother who wanted me fostered but he wanted me to be adopted 
And so he gave me to the foster parents and he said, treat this as an adoption. His name is Norman, while telling my mother that she would be able to get me back somehow. And so my foster parents took me and told me that my mother didn't want me and she was being spiteful by not signing the adoption papers and that I was their son forever. You know, so they were my mum and dad. So I had a brilliant childhood. I grew up in Lancashire. Uh, my name was Norman. Every now and again, you'd have the ups and downs that you have in, in childhood. And in my case, because I was the only black kid in the town, you know, occasionally my friends would use words or descriptions of me which were so hurtful and I didn't know what they were and I'd run back home or I'd get into fights and, you know, not know what any of this stuff was. What I knew is what every child deserves to know is that I was loved. You know, I was with my family. And at 12 years of age, the foster parents put me into children's homes and said that they would never visit me again. That is after having three children themselves. And the only thing that I could think when I went into the children's homes was that I mustn't have been good enough or that I must have done something wrong. I mean, people would say, you know, well, why did they do it? And I would ask myself, why did they do it? I say that much later on, I thought that. At the time, I thought, well, there must be something wrong with me because there's something wrong with all of us children that are in this children's home. This is the bad boy's home. This is, you know, even the people on the estate around the children's homes, they'd say, yeah, that's the bad place. That's where kids who have not been, who are not good, you know. So in the children's homes, I was still just doing what I did when I was with the Fosperos, which was my primary purpose in life was to make people smile and make them laugh and joke about. It became like a little boy trying to make people smile, but there was nobody who was connected to him. He was relative to nobody. The staff changed every four hours in the children's home. Children came and left within weeks. I was in one children's home every year for the next five years until I was 17 and a half. I didn't know anybody who knew me for longer than a year when I was 17 and a half. I had no contact with anybody under the age of 12. I became hidden in plain sight. And then at 17, uh, the social worker who was so angry with what had happened to me, this is a new social worker, a good man, he gave me my birth certificate and he said, you know, this is your name and this is your mother's name. And also he gave me letters from my mother pleading for me back to the social worker who she'd given me to, to have me fostered for a short period of time. When I got my birth certificate, I realised that's what this has been all about. That lie was established very early on when I was just a born. And the result of that lie is why I'm in the situation I'm in now. And the problem with that was, was that the people who were in the children's homes, the staff, the social workers, they didn't feel responsible. If I was ever to rebel in any way, because I was a child in a children's home, because they didn't know what to do with me, I was basically a problem. They were waiting for me to do things wrong. Nobody around me actually knew what happened to me when I was a child. That was 17 years beforehand. I'd been through four different children's homes, one uh, set of foster parents who wouldn't admit to what they did, social workers who, who also wouldn't be liable for what they did. 
So, you know, any reaction from me for answers to questions was seen as a problem. So I was trapped in this Kafkaesque nightmare. Everything that I'm telling you now is true and I've proved it. So a few years ago, I took the government to court for stealing my name, for beating me as a child, for imprisoning me as a child without legal reason and for stealing me from my mother and my father and my family. And I won. I have all of the proof. I have my files. I, I was searching for my files from the age of 18, actually, when I left care. And I got my files just a few years ago. And then I wrote the book, My Name Is Why, about my childhood. So I had both a horrific and a beautiful childhood. And I'm, I'm just really pleased that I'm at a place in my own life where I can, I can see what the foster parents did. I can see what their mistakes were. I can see that they tried their best, like all parents try their best. Most children will find why their parents didn't do one thing. I don't know. My dad didn't hug me, you know. My parents were divorced. My mother used to beat me, etc. But as we grow, it would be wonderful if we all got to, and many of us don't, a place where we can understand some of the horrific things that our parents have done to us. Because it's all relative, you know, my story is my story. Yeah? Forgiveness and coming to terms with what happened to us and all of these roads that we travel down are kind of available to us all. You know, and I think that's a beautiful thing that I've sort of realised. Would you say that growing up you did have a parent figure of any kind? No, I didn't have that. I didn't have the parent figure. I'd love to be able to reconcile my past with an idea of some shining light. When I left the children's homes, the doors shut then also to that past. So, you know, none of the staff from the children's homes were in touch with me. None of the, the foster parents obviously weren't in touch with me. What was interesting for me when I left care is that it was really difficult to explain the impact of what I didn't have. I just understood that what I didn't have was so much a part of everybody that they didn't see that they had it. My friends at 18, they all hated their parents. You know, they're all like, oh, I need to get away. Lem, don't bother with family. Forget about it. It doesn't matter. I remember realising, oh, you don't realise that having somebody to argue with is about what family's about. You're looking for a good family in your eyes and you've, been only, you've only been on the earth for 18 summers and you feel like you can articulate that family's not necessary. And I was saying it is. At least you've got some point of relativity. I'll give you a metaphor that I came up with when I was 18. If you have a family, it's like playing squash against the wall. You hit the ball really hard and it comes back at weird angles. That's the thing about squash is it tests all of your muscles in your body. And you develop muscles in places that you didn't know you bloody had muscles. <laughs> and it hurts. And actually, you might even find yourself constantly doing a certain shot and developing muscles in a place <laughs> very weird. But what I realised at 18 was that there were no walls. I had no walls. And the only thing that could happen then is that my muscles would waste away. 
that was the only way I could explain it. Like there was no bounce back. The one thing a lot of people were looking for is what did you do wrong, Lem? You know, what did you do to the foster parents for them to put you into care? What did you do in the children's homes that you were moved from one place to another? And I didn't do anything. I was a normal, bright child who was broken down slowly but surely by a system which could not live up to its name, and its name was care, by foster parents who could not live up to the name, which was as parents. It must make quite an anxious child. No kid wants to do anything, you know, naughty and get in trouble with their parents. But you've got this extra underlying, the, the price above your head is bigger, right? The lesson that my parents told me, this is really sad, but it is true, is that if I get close to people, they will go away. You know, we all have degrees of this in our lives. But in my life, it was, you lose everybody. Your grandmother, your grandfather, your your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, your granddad, your grandma, your mum, your dad, your sisters and brothers, your church, your school. Like, that was the primary lesson of my childhood at 12. And then that was further solidified by moving from one children's home to another and ending up in this horrible final place. So 18 years of sustained attack on any belief that anybody should stand by me. That gave me the basic understanding in practice that everybody will go away on an emotional level. That's really what I was given. And I didn't know it at the time, by the way. I remember thinking, everything that has happened to me is bad, but I'm not a bad person. This is when I had a breakdown, actually. I had a really big breakdown where I couldn't... It, once I started to unpick what had happened to me, it all started to fall to pieces. Actually, it was after the social worker had given me all of the stuff. And I was smoking weed as well, which was a really bad thing for me, actually, at the time. So what you'd been given, all this paperwork, your teenager doing what teenagers do, not many 15-year-olds are getting all this on their lap, are they? I mean, if you just imagine with your own children what that would feel like to cut a person off from everything they'd ever known. I, I, I can't say it to make it as dramatic as it actually was. You know, I was just basically overexcited as a child with life. I was quite hyper. I mean, in one of the reports that I, I got a few years ago, just a few years ago, from when I was in children's homes, there was a complaint by the staff that I was banging into them, like when I was running down one of the corridors. And the social worker responds by saying that he has no affection. So I told you about the emotional impact, but the physical impact is that when I went to my grandma's house... When I was a kid, little kid, she would always like touch us, you know, on our faces and our hands and stuff. I remember realising that when a person gets older, they become less and less touched as their life goes on. Her husband had died. Her children weren't with her. They were my foster mum and foster dad. And she lives alone. So when we come as the children, as the grandchildren, she gets the opportunity to touch, you see? So I remember realising that 
much later on in life, but that what I was experiencing in care by not being touched by that report from that social worker, he's banging into us and, and my social worker replying by saying, this is a person who is, is starved of touch. I remember realising much later in life that what I experienced in care was actually what my grandmother experienced. My grandmother of my foster parents, who I'd never seen again. And the thing is, is that our stories allow us to empathise with the people that have somehow become distant from us, you know. But I'm afraid that one of the things that I remember most was how easily I was forgotten. But to make myself not forgotten, I was a personality. You know, I was all about, and I think when I was 16 and a half, 17, I was like, oh, this isn't working. Not only is this not working, but it's not going to work when I leave care in a year and a half's time. They're not going to be there for you, Lem. And, and I think that's when I had the breakdown because I was like, oh shit, I am visible to everybody and yet I am utterly invisible. When you had a breakdown, who cared for you? That's when they locked me away. They pathologised me. They absolutely ignore it. What I did, because I was frightened by what was happening to me, so I, I couldn't go outside. I found it impossible to have eye contact. I could talk to people, but only people in the children's home and I couldn't go outside, and I had mad anxiety. Like, if I went to the shops, I would have to walk down the back streets. And I was the only black kid. People would look look at me. There was people spitting from bus stops, cars going faster when I walked across the road, all of these kind of, the kind of mist of racism that you only sort of see if you're of colour, you know, and then we turn around to other people and say, look, 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 and they go, are you going crazy? It's just mist. By the time I got these records, then it was like a slow depth charge inside me that just in slow motion exploded that said, Lem, this is who you are. That's who your mother is. Everybody, everybody has been lying to you, man. And not only that, the people who are around you are not going to say to you, yes, Lem, you are right. What can we do about it? Because they're liable. Of course. It's like as well, I mean, I've experienced anxiety, suspiciousness, paranoia. You've got all of that. You've got the weed. You've got being a teenager anyway, growing up. Then the racism. It's like, what is your state of mind at this moment? Right. So hunker down, like get inside yourself, Lem. You can't go out. I was only ever on the dole, which is like the welfare, you know, for about six months. But I couldn't go to the post office to cash my cheque. The children's home had said they wanted something like... 60% of everything that I earned from the age of 16 to pay it to them, to pay to be there. (laughs) So what I did is this. I got my social worker, who was a good man. He is the shining light, actually, my, my last social worker. And I said to him, I'm having a breakdown. Nobody is doing anything about this. I need to see a psychologist because... I was fully aware that in the condition that I was in, I didn't want to be sectioned. I did not want to be pathologized, where they basically stick a needle in me. I knew what was happening to me. I knew I was breaking down because of what had happened to me. I knew there was nobody to speak to, 
And I knew that I was in a dangerous position because the next thing is to actually stick a needle in me uh, for mental health. Within about a month of doing that and seeing the psychologist, a woman called Penny Cook, who is also a shining light, and who basically said to me, when I explained to her, like I'm explaining it to you, who basically said to me, yeah, Lem, you're right. So that was a saving grace. So as, I, as I'm coming back from her, in the children's homes, there is a lobby uh, from the director of children's services to put me into Woodend. And this had been since when I was in a place called a family group home. Woodend is the assessment center. It's, it's basically a dustbin. It's basically a prison for children. And I've been moved from the family group home to this massive dysfunctional institution called Oakland's. I then applied to see the psychologist who then gave me a sick note so that I didn't have to go to the post office because I couldn't walk there to get my dole money. To, God, it sounds crazy. And that's when they imprisoned me. You know, for reasons like... He's got a chip on his shoulder. And then they accused me of flicking lit matches against the curtains, which I can't remember doing at all to this day. And then they say he bought a guitar. We don't know where his, his money's come from, knowing that I had a Saturday job. So it's like the people that have made you unwell, then you're kind of running from them even when you're unwell. It's like a complete trap. There's nowhere to go. Absolutely, absolutely. And then they imprisoned me in this assessment centre because I needed assessing. And you have to remember, I've been in care for 16 years. I had a social worker for 16 years. After 16 fucking years, they decide that they want to assess me and that I, this measure has to happen. My own social worker disagreed with it and, and said that it was just um, wrong. When my social worker took me to Woodend Assessment Centre, which I was like, I was like, oh, they've got me. They've got me. Of course they've got me. This is the ultimate. Now the institution is showing itself for what it is. The, by the way, these are thoughts that I had at the time. I was like, I get it. And it's made me learn something, this. I've learned that there's nothing worse than somebody in an institution identifying that the institution is not fit for purpose. In any regard, whether you're a worker, whether you're a customer... I think we spoke, that's what we're, we actually, we spoke that time we were in that green room and I said that to you when you know that a nurse is not being competent or being fair or doesn't like you, but you have no legitimacy or agency to say so because everyone's looking at you like, oh yeah, here they go. And you're like, so you all, every, every point you make is invalid. Yeah. So as a teenager, I was in this place and I've got to say it was pretty bad in the 1980s. I mean, I was in this place that was full of men who were basically bullies and any of the younger men who were more actually learning about new social work they were just poo-pooed you know there was not enough of them for change to happen so a lot of these men were ex-army ex-probation officers ex-police officers i mean the, the, the man who ran would end was an army officer and he ran it like it was a military um, prison and so while in there i knew two things i knew that the people around me did not care what, what my story was. They were all about discipline. And the second thing that I thought was, this is really bad, but I've got to make this work for me. But I've got to also undermine their ideas. So 
in my reports, it says, you know, uh, Norman is half decent at sport, but he gives the ball away when he should be scoring a goal. Because I would just do things deliberately. Because I was like, you are not fucking, you treating me like a rat in a maze. They did a, an, an assessment exam and they said, what kind of tree are you? Are you a tree in a forest or a tree on a hill? This was the assessment, like, as I first came into the place to see where I was psychology, and I said that I'm a poetry. And because I undermined their psychologist exam, because I was like, are you fucking stupid that you're doing this to me now to assess uh, that they had to get a hold of the psychologist to come and see me? And this, that psychologist said, he's right. He's right. What he's going through, is right. He may not be equipped to deal with it, but he is right about what he's saying. So that is a shining light. Someone completely validating you. What kept you going through all of this? What kept you, your mind there? Well, I I mean, I wrote poetry, which was, I mean, I I can see in retrospect that it was good for me to do that. That was somehow a way of being able to remember where I was and what I was going through at that time. Because I came to realise that family is basically a group of unreliable witnesses, right? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to tell my mum that after this. Do you know what I mean? It's a group of unreliable witnesses and you have to be... Columbo, the investigator, like going, okay, so you say that I did this then, but actually my sister says I did that then. I believe I, believe I did something totally different. <laughs> but the difference there, isn't there, is there's that like you, you'd hope like an unconditional love and you don't have that. Like You have the, you have the, the love that, you, you know, the love is there. Whether anybody in that room recognises it as being there, it's there. Totally. I remember my my mum and dad split up and my dad saying he didn't get to live with us, you know, he left the house and he said, it's the little things, it's just passing you on the way to the bathroom, that's what I don't get. But I remember being 15, like, why would you want that? And now I'm like, of course, it's not jelly and ice cream every day. No, gosh, no. That's what people used to say to me. They used to say, oh, Liam, you don't want a family, it's a pain in the back, blah, blah, blah. That takes me... Right back to my own time with my family, with my foster parents, the passing on the way to the bathroom. When I left that assessment centre at 17 and a half, I hadn't sat down to have food with a family. I hadn't done that. That hadn't happened. I'd been to a couple of people's houses and felt like a like I'd tunnelled my way in, you know, and that I, I was suddenly in this room with these people after tunnelling. What do you do here? Do you, how do you hold a cup? I'm even imagining every, every house has a smell, doesn't it? Even a smell, it's like that identity. So when you're, when you're speaking as well, you know, you're doing that amazing thing where you're seeing a whole... You know, when you talk about the people in your assessment centre, you're talking about the people that ended up here and who their parents were and why they were the way of that. You're very forgiving in that way from what's happened to you. What do you think you've taken through to your adult life from this? How has it shaped you? Oh, God, how has it shaped me? Bloody hell. Maybe it's that, you know, I have got to be uh, my own reliable witness. And that, that's not easy to stand up for yourself, you know, to go, no, I'm, I'm okay, you know, I'm, you know, a good person and what have you. I remember somebody saying to me once, I went through this time when I was in group therapy, which was, which was a thing, but it, 
I tried it anyway. And somebody said, what do you want to be? I said, I just want to be a good person. He said, that's absolute rubbish. And, and it was just another person in the group and we could all say what we wanted to say. But I think he was right, you know, in, in the sense that you want to be good with yourself. That's it. You know, you don't want to be okay with your ups and your downs and your dysfunctions and, and what have you. I am told on many occasions that I should join the family by having a family. And it's, it's, it's an option at the moment. And uh, it's a very scary one. Having a child, you do get reborn, but you do have to die first. <laughs> because <laughs> it's a lot because it confronts you but maybe you've done all that anyway yeah maybe I have look this is what having somebody you love a child does for you on one level it stops you thinking about yourself stops you thinking about your own story and it's like okay Lem you know we got to build we, I'm sorry to say that, but we got to build a wall Lem your child might one day turn around my child you know if I had a child it might turn around and say you built a wall and I'm like, yeah, I built it for you, you little shit. It's so we can play squash. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I think being a parent makes you possibly go, okay, everything that was before was my own birth into this next stage of my life. You know, I'm still a writer, I'm still a this, that, the other, but actually there's a whole other me that is being born out of this. And that birth can be horrific, as you know more than me, you know, uh, but, but also beautiful as well at the same time. It's funny because you're saying that about a new person, but the kids always sniff it out and they get you at your most exhausted and drained and they know you. You know, with adults, you can conjure up and pretend you're someone else, but a kid is like, I'm not buying this because it's not true. And all their knowledge of the world is based on what they... It's so primal and instinctive, you can't put up any... They're, they're there to sniff out the danger and the threat. Like you spent your whole adolescence and childhood doing. Yeah, I think that would be amazing for you if you felt like you were ready. That would be a big deal. But I had a very strong belief that grew in me without me realising it, that I shouldn't be born. I shouldn't have been born. And not, not only should I not have been born, but that I was just bad luck and the proof is in everything. I thought I had this feeling through my 20s and 30s that if I die, it's the end of a line that shouldn't have happened. And a lot of my success, I guess, has been fighting against that very powerful idea. Because, you know, I, I eventually did find my birth family all over the world and I think it was quite a shock for them. My mother found it very difficult to come to terms with me being around, which is understandable after 21 years it was, till I found her. I mean, if you imagine, like, somebody walking into your front room and saying, I'm your older brother and I'll be sticking around. Oh, and by the way, I write books. I mean, that's the other thing about all of this, you know, it's just my truth. Just a last question, you know, when you were saying earlier about the muscles that you didn't think you developed in squash, I just wondered what you thought those muscles were. Oh, it's a very good question. The word that comes to mind is staying power, relativity. The relationship with the idea that somebody will be there, we have to, as human beings be able to grow and I, I do feel this is what I've been given and this is what I've done with it 
And I have to do what I do when I'm teaching somebody to write, which is look at the work and go, do you know how good that is? That's amazing. You are. I swear to God, that image that that child has just come up with, nobody could have thought about that except for you. That is unique. I've never seen that before in my entire life. So, you know, I should say to myself what I would say to that person in that workshop. Which is, you know, which is a lot, lot, you know, we're all in this, it's a lifelong project, right? Lem, honestly, I just could listen to you forever, honestly. I want you to take all my favourite books and reread them, but then also annotate them, dissect them. You've got such a beautiful way of looking at the world, you really do, and um, it pains me when I think of the exhaustion you might feel, you know, most, if you look at what you'd hope for as a young person, it's to live and then it gets tiring and then it gets exhausting and you had that from a really young age and you still are just so shining. Thank you for being so generous with me and um, I'm just so looking forward. You're the best, honestly. If you have been affected by any of the themes in this programme, head to the episode description for resources and helplines. Zombie Mum was produced by B. Duncan with original music by Hugo White. It was mastered by Ben Williams. The executive producer was Hannah Walker-Brown. This is a Broccoli production. Next week, I'm talking to Bryony Kimmings. Here's a sneak peek from our conversation. I'd seen three spiders in the bedroom and I'd killed each of them and then been like, they're all trying to take Frank away. They've come to take him away. And I remember staying up all night that night and being like, they're not having him. Like, no way are they having him. And I think that was the moment that I, when I, the next morning I was like, that was crazy. But I still didn't go to the doctor's. <laughs>